Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Goodwill Hunting. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a photographic memory? I don't know, you know, I just kind of remember. Meet Will Hunting. In South Boston, he's already a legend. Assault, mayhem, theft, resisting, all overturned. But when you hit an officer, you go in. I've spoken to the judge, and he's agreed to release you. Really? You have to meet with me and a therapist every week. This boy's genius is unparalleled. I've never seen anything like it. Now, I need someone who can get through to him. Like me. For the first time in his life. It's a poker game, this kid. Any vulnerability senses will exploit. Will Hunting is about to meet his match. Did you paint that? Yeah, I painted it. Very interesting. Or maybe you're in the middle of a storm, you know, and the waves are crashing over your tiny little boat there, and maybe you did what you had to do to get out. Maybe you became a psychologist. You got me. And maybe you married the wrong woman. Maybe you should watch your mouth. Nobody can understand you, right, Will? You're a genius. I can't learn anything from you. I can't read in some book. Unless you want to talk about you. Are you terrified of what you might say? You're sitting on a winning lottery ticket. You got something none of us have. Oh, come on. Why is it always this? I mean, I owe it to myself. You don't owe it to yourself. You owe it to me. Because I'd do anything to have what you got. So would any of these guys. She's perfect right now, and I don't want to ruin that. Maybe you're perfect right now. Maybe you don't want to ruin that. That way you can go through your entire life without ever having to really know anybody. I love you. You ever think about getting remarried? My wife's dead. Hence the word remarried. The wife's dead. Well, I think that's a super philosophy, Sean. I mean, that way you could actually go through the rest of your life without ever really knowing anybody. Robin Williams. Matt Damon. Ben Affleck. Stellan Skarsgård. And Minnie Driver. Goodwill Hunting. A film by Gus Van Sant. This episode was a commission from listener Ruki Saavedra, who in the past commissioned Miami Connection. That's the... Uh thank him for that classic episode. Rookie initially wanted us to cover Bicentennial Man or One Hour Photo, two movies we have no special feelings about, the binding factor being Robin Williams. Williams had a range, and there are three main columns of his character types, some roles straddling two or even all three in the case of Mrs. Doubtfire. Firstly, there's impression-spouting manic man-child. Secondly, there's troubled serious man in pain. And then third and most rare, there's cold-eyed sociopath. In One Hour Photo, he plays a villain and a living creep, something he does alarmingly well, but not the column that gets our hearts and brains pumping personally, Ian Sharon. And we will most likely cover that scenario if we ever do a Christopher Nolan season with insomnia. In Bicentennial Man, he is in that lucrative family entertainment mode, though the story occasionally goes in hard with an abiding, serious core. There's an established childlike version of himself that he lapses into, and we covered that in Hook and Jumanji. 
There were many starring roles he took in the 80s, 90s and noughts, and some of them were hits and some of them were duds. But these roles were the ones that general audiences knew him for. That version of him hits the absolute heights in Aladdin, which we covered just before his death, though the episode was released afterward. I suggested to Rookie instead that we cover Goodwill Hunting to capture the too-soon-departed Robin Williams at his absolute serious best in a film we feel very strongly about, and Rookie graciously agreed, preferring a rich discussion of a film he didn't choose rather than forcing a dry one on a film he did. What you're about to hear is thanks to that shrewd decision on Rookie's part. I think the reason that Robin is so strong in Goodwill Hunting is the fact that he's not the lead. He's a prominent support role in a dramatic fashion. If you remember, he was a, uh, a cameo support role in the execrable nine months as the comedy foreign doctor and he's just played for laughs there and he's he's terrible if he's in there in a reduced capacity in serious fashion there tends to be a lot more potential for unlocking part of williams that we see less in Google hunting he's understated and bearded and like in awakenings that leads to a different very welcome aspect of his complicated personality one that is avuncular and slight warm and experienced rather than the man-child but there's that trouble inside, which at one point in this film spills out violently. It feels painfully honest and raw, and that's why it's at the top of the middle column, which makes it, in our eyes, his best dramatic performance. Now, we may love this movie, but that doesn't make it an easy film to cover. We have had to put it off for years, because it's daunting. It's a dedicated drama, free of the popcorn dismissal we usually thrive on. You know, because what we do best, our speciality... Is taking what are referred to as genre pictures and deconstructing them to show you that there are layers and layers of depth underneath, author intended or not, which we are attuned to do in sci-fi and fantasy. But it's harder in a drama because it's all right there. It's not the subtext, it's the text. That's why we haven't done Precious, based on the novel Push by Sapphire, yet. Not only that, but Goodwill Hunting is a hard drama at times. It's upsetting and intimate and unflinching. They wear their colours on their sleeve. They themselves, they say in their, their commentary, that uh, it's, it's not exactly a subtle point we're making with a lot of the uh, symbolism. And what we say may hit some people quite hard, us included. But if you want to hear Robin Williams' films talked about, stay tuned to the end of this because we've got some news about what's coming next week. So Goodwill Hunting is a film directed by Gus Van Sant, who usually charges himself with creating movies about troubled young people. At least he did up to this point. Uh, after Goodwill Hunting, there was a lot more films about grown-ups, like Milk, and the shot-for-shot remake of Psycho, which uh, came out a year after this. That was a really bad idea. For a start, uh, Gus Van Sant was fighting a losing battle. He's like, well, I want to get kids interested in Psycho. And rather than reshaping it to something that kids would like, he just kept everything and just made it colour with modern day actors and then inserted occasional shots of a sheep 
I'm not kidding. There's a bit like with a sheep and a bit like with a train going towards a sheep. And I was like, was there a sheep there? In the original, there's a scene where Anthony Perkins is looking at Janet Lee through through a peephole. And it's like, this feels horrible. In this new one, in the newer one in 1998, Vince Vaughn is straight up wanking. Splendid. There's a bit later on where Julianne Moore and Viggo Mortensen are like trying to play a game with... Norman Bates and like they're winking at each other so I came out of it going there was too many sheep and too much winking and wanking <laughs> in that psycho and I'm gonna guess it's a, a film that uh, Gus Van Zandt regrets but it came just after this very celebrated film um, it was released during Oscar season in late December 1997 up against Titanic as good as it gets and LA Confidential all four of these films remain great movies for us so this was a good haul but Titanic swept the stage that night nominated for 14 awards and winning 11 of them Matt Damon lost to Jack Nicholson for Best Actor. Minnie Driver lost to Kim Basinger in LA Confidential for Best Supporting Actress. Danny Elfman lost to James Horner for Titanic's Best Score. Elliot Smith lost to Celine Dion for Best Song. Pietro Scalia lost to Conrad Buff on Titanic for Best Editing. Gus Van Sant lost to Jim Cameron for Best Directing. And Goodwill Hunting itself lost to Titanic for Best Picture. They tend to award the uh, producer. For, for Best Picture, and that would have been Lawrence Bender who produced uh, Pulp Fiction. But that night, Robin Williams beat Greg Kinnear to Best Support Actor, and Matt Damon and Ben Affleck beat Mark Andrus and James L. Brooks on As Good As It Gets for Best Original Screenplay. These two young men were seen in those early days as an injection of energetic young blood into the continuously aging, glossily painted face of Hollywood. Oh, the times have a change. It's been 21 years. Yes. And I can still smell the fresh paint. Old Lady from Titanic was also nominated for Best Support mm. Actress. Yeah. It's been 21 years and that was the best one. <laughs> <laughs> it was. I, honestly, I can't remember. Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, I don't think they've gone back and written a film together that they've starred in together since then. It might be an idea for them to do that. Yeah. Recapture a bit of that. See if they can, you know, spark off each other again. Because they're very middle-aged and a little bit grumpy right now. Mm. Ben Affleck is now too old to be Batman. He's not too old to be Dark Knight Returns Batman. True. So good Will Hunting. 20-year-old, poor, solitary, South Boston kid Will Hunting mops floors at MIT, one of the most prestigious technical colleges in the world. He hides the fact that he has an astonishingly precise memory and the ability to work with numbers that goes beyond genius. He's also sitting on a mountain of rage and hang-ups, all connected with his traumatic upbringing, none of which he shares with his straight-up Boston Irish friends, seemingly the only people he ever communicates with, especially Chucky. Will's temper gets him into trouble with the police and he faces jail time for repeated disruptive behaviour, but a mathematics professor named Jerry, who discovers his abilities, plea bargains to take the young man under his wing, hoping to get him to apply those skills somewhere that will allow him to fulfil his potential. Part of the deal is that Will must see a therapist and after several misfires, Jerry, exasperated, recruits his college roommate, Sean McGuire, who also grew up in Southie. Meanwhile, Will has met a smart young Harvard student named Skylar, whom he hides most of the facts of his hard life from. The film is about these various aspects of Will, his cocky attitude, his math magic, and his secret pain and anxiety all colliding as he interacts with these various peoples, all trying to encourage him to focus himself or open up or both. 
Jerry, Skylar, Chucky, and most of all, Sean. So we begin with Danny Elfman's score and the Copperplate Gothic intro. They really do love Copperplate Gothic for the uh, for the fonts in this film. The now, if you watch the deleted scenes, the original opening was going to be uh, the St. Patrick's Day parade, which they actually went to and shot two months beforehand. Uh, before filming started, because obviously you can't move for St. Patrick's Day, and it was a it was a neat moment. It, it feels authentic, specifically to South Boston. You pointed out it didn't really feel authentic, and they mentioned in the commentary that they aren't dressed like the characters because they hadn't established the wardrobes. They had to have hats on because they didn't know what their hair would look like, <laughs> and that's why it's like. Do, do they like they 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 look like these guys in caps? Who aren't yet fully formed characters? Uh, Morgan looks about right, but uh, but the, all, the other thing is, you've got this lovely Danny Elfman music, and Danny Elfman's score really is fantastic in this. It's very restrained. This is the man who does boom 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 boom. So when he does something quieter and more contemplative, can be really effective. Mm. Well, this is very similar to a simple plan, and he did that as well. Didn't yes, he? he did. Yeah, uh, and Big Fish is a, is another similar um, light score on his part. But I think for me, the the deleted scene intro, what comes across the most about it is that it's almost an apologetic little love note to Boston. To Boston, yeah. To sort of say, right, we're about everything to- <laughs> we're about to say about Boston comes from a place of love. So please don't beat us up for this it. This is authentic. We're about to smash this bitch wide open. Indeed. And I think the the intro that they they settle on in the end, I absolutely love it. And what they do is they cut back and forth from various aspects of Will's life. So you see pages and pages of math problems. You see uh, bits of Boston and then it gradually focuses in on Will himself sitting in, in his apartment, surrounded by mess, reading. But it's all overlaid with this kind of fly-eye kaleidoscope mm. effect, which then gets used once. Once. Later I was on going to film. ask you about that. Now, my... You, you can kind of read that effect two ways from a, a symbolic perspective. The uh, There's probably others as well, but there were two that I thought of. In the beginning part, it almost seems like these are all the aspects of Will that to the average onlooker would be confused and blurry and Diffuse. difficult to pick out what is the most important thing about him, uh, what is particularly important to him, and... The scene in the film that uses the same technique is when Sean is talking about an incident from his past and it blurs and it uses that same kaleidoscope effect. And so with that, that's almost Sean saying his past is blurry to him because these are the incidents that he struggled to make sense of. So this elements of Will's life that everyone else sees as blurry and not making sense, Will doesn't see them as making sense either. He can't put all the pieces together, much though he tries to convince everybody that he can. 
Immediately after this, we meet Jerry Lambeau, this swaggering superstar math laureate is probably the, the best way of putting it. This is this is Stellan Skarsgård's finest performance for it's, me. It's fantastic. And my note for this opening bit was, who applauds after a maths lesson? And then I thought, he probably makes them do that. He writes on the blackboard, applause, or you're all getting yeah, Fs. Absolutely. He gets, he gets <laughs> Tom to hold up a card. Well, by no stretch of my imagination do I believe you've all come here to hear me lecture or rather to ascertain the identity of the mystery math magician. So without further ado, come forward, silent rogue, and receive thy prize. He plays it with... He's kind of charming, but then he lays it on a bit too thick. They allowed um, a lot of leeway with the script. Uh, uh, Van Sant, who is very... This was described in the Blu-ray.com review, taciturn during his commentary, which basically means he's a quiet... Guy. Doesn't talk much. Doesn't talk much. Let Matt and uh, uh, Ben talk a lot during the commentary. Mm. And um, he mentioned that usually the writer is banished from set because they get upset when things get changed. But Ben and Matt were very keen to allow their actors to take ownership of the characters and to add things. Mm. And um, uh, Skarsgård added the scarf, I believe, and uh, added the uh, thing about him coming on to ladies all the time. Not literally, that would be hideous. Uh, but him uh, sleezing up to women all the time and trying to... Specifically female students. Yeah, there's quite like... He goes for oh. the young ones and he's like sort of, oh, ma- a good mathematical equation is like a symphony. And... It- <laughs> In uh, the uh, uh, you know in the handling of a lesser actor or just someone who was less confident in the way he's coming across, but at the same time uh, you couldn't see that there was more to it than that. He, it would just come across as nauseating. Mm. But, well, the best part is he's never successful. I mean, yeah. you see that these girls kind of admire him for his intellect, but none of them ever go, "Yeah, all right." Then. Oh, he's never making out with a student. No, <laughs> it's clear a lot of them are just smart students who are like, "Yeah, just keep him happy, and then I'll make sure that I get a good grade." Mm. Uh, which, you know, you got to schmooze, uh, especially if you're paying $150,000 for your education. Absolutely. But this, this repeated, he thinks he's more important than he is, comes up over and over again. And one of the best balloon deflating moments is mm. when he goes down to the workshop to try and find Will. Brawling with labourers. Yeah, he's talking to the guys who run the janitorial department. And Tom's like... This is Professor Jerry Lambeau. And they're like, This is Professor Hayes. I don't know, and I don't care. And it's like, he carries zero authority does not matter. In this environment, exactly. He's very much at home in his own environment. But it's clear that outside of MIT, no one knows who the hell he is. Uh, the uh, the the scarf, by the way, uh, apparently he composed his theorem whilst wearing that scarf. So it's like his lucky scarf. He never takes the bloody thing off. Oh, and that might be why the girls don't want to go out with him because yeah. it smells by this point. Uh, hands up if anyone's from MIT and let me know. But Jesus Christ, those red blazers and pink shirts and the stripy tie combos—those are hideous to look at, even in HDR. Especially in HD. Yeah. <laughs> They're a little bit blinding. But the, you're right about his his performance carries a lot of the the plot elements of the story. Um, the Well, he represents what Will could become if he becomes full of himself for being smart over yeah, one specific which thing. Is, which is important, but also he communicates to the audience how smart Will is. Because we see these complex math problems written down on blackboards and whiteboards and in books and things, and we look at them and the vast majority of us will go, sorry, what? 
<laughs> that's more algebra than I've seen in my entire life and it's hurting my head. And they never, nobody's ever going to kind of try and explain them in a way that the audience will, for the most part, understand. It's Jerry's reaction to them hmm. that we have to go on, that these are really fucking hard problems. You're just going to have to take our word for it, but they really, really are. And it's hmm. incredibly impressive that Will can do them. Oh, and in case you don't miss it, the seven or eight times he mentions it, he won he a, a Fields medal. medal. <laughs> he won a Fields medal for doing a math. Yeah. We don't know what math. It doesn't matter what math, but he won a Fields medal for it. Apparently, it's really important. So we see uh, Will's uh, daily routine. He travels to work quietly on the uh, metro and then he travels uh, back uh, home again. Uh, he goes to a bar with his mates. And uh, you see that like that's that's ju- that's all he does. The, they're, they're very um, careful to show that he doesn't communicate with people. Mm-hmm. He keeps himself to himself. He's doing these, these math equations and f- signing stuff on the, uh, uh, the blackboards in the corridors uh, like a ninja, with a math ninja with subterfuge. No one else see, sees him do it. Mm. And uh, that, that's, that's acting out. And it's, a, it's a, an enigma as to why he's doing that. It's not much of an enigma because it's very clear that he's trying to let that part of him out in a way that he can kind of show off without actually making it about him mm. and, and getting focused on and, and, and not having any pressure on him to do anything about that. Yeah, absolutely. And there's another element of his subterfuge as well in his overalls mm-hmm. because the name tag on them says Bob and he is not Bob. No. He is pretending to be somebody who's not, or should I say he is pretending not to be somebody he is. Mm. Uh, we see Ben Affleck here. This is the funniest Ben Affleck's been. And one of the most uh, sweet roles as well. It is. It, 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 there's a part of my brain sees him and Cole Hauser together and wants to kind of shoehorn it into this being a progression of Dazed, Dazed and Confused. Confused. But they're horrible in that and they're yeah. really nice in this. Well, I mean, <laughs> Billy, who we meet here, and Cole Hauser was quite um, determined to, to come across as very authentic. So when we first meet Cole Hauser, he's got a hangover and doesn't say anything. So that's his introduction. Is Cole Hauser a friend of theirs as well? or did ben They met on a film called from... School Ties. Oh, okay. Yeah. But yeah, Affleck is actually genuinely... like He's the kind of screen presence where you... They establish who he is early on so the audiences always know that they need to be smirking whenever Chucky is doing or saying anything, which is why at the end when you get that double whammy Mm. from Chucky, it seems to come out of nowhere because he's the comic relief. Mm. Um, But he's also the leader. Yeah. And there's this weird triple bind of Casey Affleck as Morgan because, you know, back in 1998 and 7 when we saw this, you know, he was this weird, creepy little kid who we'd never seen before. We'd not seen him in Ocean's Eleven yet. And he was, you know, his name was Affleck. So if if you knew Ben Affleck from his indie films that he'd already done, like Days of Confused and More Rats, you'd go, oh, so this is an Affleck too. And he's, you know, funnier than Chucky in some regards. And he's got, you know, great, uh, fresh, natural delivery, a lot of which was improvised. And, and then there's the double bind of the fact that he's also a, now gone on to be a very serious actor and director. And, uh, you know, he's respected in Hollywood and he's seen as a creator. And then there's the triple bind, wherein in the film I'm Still Here with Joaquin Phoenix, not to be confused with You Were Never Really Here with Joaquin Phoenix. Casey Affleck, who was directing it, uh, and Joaquin Phoenix as well, did some really unsavory shit with the uh, women who, with two of the women who uh, were trying to work on the film and were really placed in a very difficult environment. So he has contributed to this, 
you know, progressively uncovering series of misbehaviors by shitty men. And so, on the one hand, you're thinking, oh, Casey Affleck, you're funny. Then you're thinking, oh, Casey Affleck, you were going to grow up to be a serious guy. And then you're thinking, oh, Casey Affleck, you piece of shit. And that's about all I'm going to say about Casey Affleck in this film. Okay. I don't think I have anything else to say about Morgan that isn't elements of other people anyway, so that's no. fine. I will uh, I will go with that. They go see a little league game and they're drinking out of brown paper bags. And uh, they are way too invested in this little league game, considering that none of them have any kids. Yeah, that's kind of creepy. Will sees uh, a guy named Scott that uh, used to beat the shit out of him in kindergarten, and they uh, ambush him in the street, which leads to the big fight. Now, it's an impressive, uh, impressively shot fight. Some of the stuff was actually shot in slow motion. Some of the sh- stuff was simulated slow motion, so they were just like, so they could actually connect the fists to each other's faces. And there's a lot of uh, great sound design here where they're actually mixing um, dozens of uh, different audio cues together into sort of this montage of chaotic sound, which gives it a sense of unreality, like time doesn't move normally when you're in the middle of a fight. What strikes me here, though, is that while Will's three friends are just getting into a fight, for Will, it swiftly becomes very, very personal, and he ends up practically in a frenzy where he's got this uh, guy down on the floor and just beating the living fuck out of him, to the point that when the police come in to intervene and pull him off the guy, he can't stop. How do you interpret that? It comes almost immediately after a another scene of what I would describe as an expression of masculine affection through violence and aggression. He and Chucky are basically punching each other to say hi. And it's, it's alluded to many, many times throughout the film that this is literally the only way that Will has to express himself. He can't connect physically with anybody in a way that isn't violent, whether that is affectionate, whether it's resentful, whether it's challenging, whatever his approach, there's a a degree of aggression in it. And the scene we're coming up to is another example of a different kind of aggression, simply because Will has that tool in his box and nobody else does. Mm. And the fact that when they get into the fight on the basketball court, he can't stop. It's almost like he doesn't want to be stopped either. And hes it's very clear that he has got a deep anger at someone who we don't yet know, but a deep anger at somebody that needs to find expression of some kind. And when you find out about his younger life in and out of foster homes at the very least one caregiver who turned out to be abusive you know he was having a fucking shit time of things at home and then when he went to kindergarten this kid beat the crap out of him so it was like it was literally adding insult to injury and injury to insult so this was a catharsis to be able to say you made my shit life even worse 
and now I'm going to beat the living crap out of your face. Yeah, and in in his head, he's got justification of a sort. Mm. And the fact that his friends are throwing in with him, that makes him feel more justified in doing what he does. But they back off when they hit the line. Another thing, Will absolutely hates authority. Punching a policeman's part of that. It stands to reason that if this kid, Scott, was able to beat the crap out of him in kindergarten, where the fuck were the teachers? Why was this not stopped? Well, the same thing Authority failed Will. Absolutely. Again and again and again. And the same thing applies to his foster parents. It wasn't just one foster family where he was mistreated. It says in his file that he was removed, I think the the judge refers to it in the court scene, he was moved from several foster homes because of abuse. And the, the foster father who treated him the worst seems to be the last one he was with because he was certainly a teenager, almost an adult at that point, going by the photographs. Right. So effectively an orphan placed in the charge of the state, repeatedly being moved around and being failed again and again and again, never finding a place of love or nurturing. Mm. There's never much mention of his birth parents. We don't know how they died. We don't know how young he was when they died. But it seems that their absence has had more impact on him than any presence they may have had in his life. Mm-hmm. baby, stay up all night When the things you can do You won't, but you might The potential you'll be That you'll never see The promises you'll only make after that, we get one of the more famous uh, scenes in the film, the how do you like them apples scene. I think this was ma- was kind of boosted by the uh, comedy of Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, where Matt Damon and Ben Affleck and, indeed, the guy who played Scott William Winters, Clark, uh, all reprised their roles uh, from Good Will Hunting for Good Will Hunting 2 hunting season. It's a well-executed scene because, for, first off, they go to a Harvard bar where, uh, I, okay, folks, especially those of you with genuine Boston accents, if you're listening, Movie Bob, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm going to lapse into Boston occasionally because it is appropriate. It's bad, but I'm going to do it anyway. So they go to a Harvard bar. <laughs> And uh, immediately Chucky sees uh, Minnie Driver and her friend and then does this weird little bird dance towards them where he's like going, mm, mm, and bopping his head. Doing the white man's overbite. Yeah, he ordered lagers and then left them there. And then he sort of points to someone as though to go, do I know you? And then makes himself clumsily known to them in a kind of an affable, not especially charming uh, way, which you know probably would have ended in them having a somewhat sardonic conversation with him, rebuffing him and sending him back to the other end of the bar. But then Clark intervenes like a twat. Clark comes in with some seriously shitty, pompous behaviour, sizing up Chucky as someone who does not belong in this place, and then outlining quite how much Chucky doesn't belong in this place. Although, weirdly enough, Chucky knows the bouncers. Ah. So they they all, when they come in, they're like, oh, hi, and the, the guys on the door obviously know them. Now, whether that's because the guys on the door work multiple venues and know them from somewhere else, I don't know. I'm guessing that Clark... Michael Bolton lookalike, um, was not born in Southie or, no. or even Boston. Really? 
So, uh, you think? Specifically, so uh, uh, Chucky has kind of a I was here first thing going on about Boston itself. Mm. When Will intervenes, it's kind of this avenging intellectual angel, but he's, you know, amusingly really aggressive in his counterpointing of Clark's attacks. Yeah, well, like I said, this is another manifestation of the exact same aggression that led to him beating the shit out of the the guys in the basketball park. It's, I have this which is stronger than what you've got, and I'm going to beat you down with it. And he does it for... Yes, he's doing it because he's defending Chucky. But he also then follows it up with, I can take you outside and beat the shit out of you as well if you like. Yeah. In other words, I've got both these bases covered. Yeah. But it's pretty apparent from the way that he talks, and Will does this a few times as well, the way he rattles off what he says. I don't know if I'd go so far as to say that he rehearses these speeches, but he clearly figures out some answers ahead of time to have everything there on the tip of his tongue in the middle of an argument. In case someone talks about Gordon Wood in a discussion with him. I don't know. (laughs) It does seem unlikely that he'd have that particular line of argument set up and ready to go. But it's coming out because he has something to prove. It comes out in that particular moment. If Skylar hadn't been there, he'd have just walked up and punched the guy. Um, He's trying to prove something, he just doesn't know what or to who. No, honestly, I don't think he would have walked up and punched him. He gets that they're in a Harvard bar mm. and that they uh, need to be on their somewhat best behaviour. He you know, suggests the whole going outside thing. But he's, in, he's bringing um, a, a helicopter level of over-knowledge to a research fight. Clark's weighing in there with his weapons and, and, and Will comes in there with much bigger weapons but also specifically like laser guided missiles that point out exactly where Clark's weapons derive from mm. thus exposing them for the recitations that they actually are mm, Yeah, but Will gets called on this himself later on applesauce bitch mm-hmm. indeed how'd you like that course? you know frankly I found the class, you know, rather uh, elementary. Elementary. You know, I don't doubt that it was. Yeah. I, uh, I remember that class. It was, um, it was just between recess and lunch. Clark, why don't you go away? Why don't you relax? Why don't you go away? I'm just having fun with my new friend, that's all. Wait, we could have a problem? No, 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 there's no problem here. I was just hoping you might give me some insight into the evolution of the market economy in the southern colonies. My contention is that uh, prior to the Revolutionary War, the economic modalities, especially in the southern colonies, could most aptly be characterized as agrarian pre-capital. All right, of course that's your Hang contention. On a You're a first-year grad student. You just got finished reading some Moxian historian, Pete Garrison, probably. You're going to be convinced of that till next month when you get to James Lemon. Then you're going to be talking about how the economies of Virginia and Pennsylvania were entrepreneurial and capitalist way back in 1740. That's going to last until next year. You're going to be in here regurgitating Gordon Wood. Talking about, you know, the pre-revolutionary utopia and the capital-forming effects of military mobilization. As a matter of fact, I won't because Wood drastically underestimates the impact Wood of social dis- Wood drastically underestimates the impact of social distinctions predicated upon wealth, especially inherited wealth. You got that from Vickers. Work in Essex County, page 98, right? 
Yeah, I read that too. Were you gonna plagiarize the whole thing for us? Do you have any thoughts of your own on this matter? Or do you, is that your thing? You come into a bar, you read some obscure passage and then pretend you, you pawn it off as your own, as your own idea just to impress some girls, embarrass my friend? See, the sad thing about a guy like you is in 50 years, you're gonna start doing some thinking on your own and you're gonna come up with the fact that there are two certainties in life. One, don't do that. And two, you dropped 150 grand on a fucking education you could have got for a dollar 50 in late charges at the public library. <laughs> yeah, but I will have a degree and you'll be serving my kids fries at a drive-thru on our way to a skiing trip. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, but at least I won't be unoriginal. But, I mean, if you have a problem like that, I mean, we could just step outside. We could figure it out. No, man, there's no problem. It's cool. It's cool? Yeah, cool. Fucking damn right, it's cool. How you like me not? <laughs> My boy's wicked smart. Will defends himself in court again using textbooks and it seems like without Jerry's intervention he was going to go to prison for quite a while. Mm, potentially so. I think the... As a repeat offender. The remark he makes about uh, liberty is the soul's right to breathe, he's being facetious but that is a truth for Will. His, he can't breathe in the life he has right now. Mm. And Jerry turns him over to a bunch of... Did, he, did they say five different uh, therapists or psychologists yes. before Sean? Yeah, we only see two of them, yeah. but he's tried five, apparently. There's the psychologist and the hypnotist, and they seem to represent uh, the system to will or authority figures or anybody who can tell him more about himself than he knows, and he immediately dismisses, rejects them, makes fun of them, and uh, makes a mockery of their practice, as though to say... And he did that as well with uh, Clark... To say, you've spent all this money, you've spent all this time working on becoming who you are and as socially accepted as you are, but I can tear this down in just a few seconds. Specifically through approved forms of education. Yeah. And what they're all doing, and Jerry does this himself, is take what they consider to be a paternal role with Will. Like, their assumption of his situation is he just needs somebody to take him in hand. He just needs a good dad to come and, and tell him what he needs to do. That's all it is. He just doesn't know which way to go forward. I don't think you can tell any 20-year-old young man no more ballyhoo and expect anything good to come well, from no, it. no, absolutely. But here's the thing. It, it doesn't matter... <laughs> that Will doesn't know which path to take, they're not the ones to make those decisions. He is practically an adult. They are not his father. And even if they were, frankly, by this point, he, he should be making his own choices anyway. But to, to try and push him down routes that they predetermine for him is doomed to failure and Jerry does something when they they go into his office to look at the maths problem and the way it's set up it's done to almost needle at Jerry's teaching assistant Tom who's obviously had a very close relationship with him up to this point his smithers yeah his smithers and Will is kind of ousting him a little bit and you can tell that Tom is not entirely happy about this fact but Jerry you see them from behind, and Jerry puts his arm around, not around Will's shoulders, but on the back of the chair that he's sitting on. Mm. And then 
ruffles his hair like he would with a four-year-old. Go get him, tiger. Yeah. Now, um, that... I, I mean, under any circumstances, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. It's ridiculously patronising, especially to a 20-year-old man. Um, but also... In considering Will's background, and I know Jerry doesn't know any of this, but it hasn't been bothered to look. That unsolicited physical contact could have triggered anything. Hmm. Will could have turned around and punched him in the face at that point. Hmm. Um, he's also clearly, and this again comes across in the Clark scenario. He's deeply resentful, furious, even with people who are, come from privilege and are made by the system, hmm. um, paid through. He considers himself to be self-made, but at the same time, the version of himself that he's putting out to the world is not socially acceptable. It's on the absolute bottom rung, and he doesn't matter, and he's very aware of that. So he's wrestling with this fierce pride and arrogance, but at the same time, awareness that he means nothing to the rest of the world. So he, when given the chance, tells them how meaningless their lives are mm, yeah. to hurt them. Mm, yeah, because he's projecting. Yeah. You want to read a real history book, read Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States. That book will fucking knock you on your ass. Better than Chomsky's Manufacturing Consent? You think that's a good book? Fucking people baffle me. Spend all your money on these fucking fancy books. You surround yourselves with them. They're the wrong fucking books. What are the right fucking books, Will? <laughs> hey, whatever blows your hair back. Yeah. I haven't got much hair left. Hey, you know you'd be better off shoving that cigarette up your ass. It'd probably be healthier for you. Yeah, I know. I really get some way of my yoga. <laughs> you work out, huh? What, you lift? Yeah. Yeah, Nautilus? No, free weights. Oh, really? Yeah, free weights, huh? Yeah, big time. Yeah? Just like that. What do you bench? 285. What do you bench? You paint that? Will changes the subject because from the look on his face, it's less than 285. Uh, then we get to meet Sean Robin Williams again like I say he's very reined in in this he's funny in the way his uh, teaching method uh, comes across and it's in this community college and you've got these dingbats chewing their hair and going uh because like trust is life they make Greendale seem like the dead poet society a little bit a little bit <laughs> but this is it's it's very amusing to me because the and I say that as someone who went to a community college. <laughs> um, it's like a disco with books. The attitude towards psychotherapy in this is unusual in that it demonstrates understanding of the subtleties of different approaches. Most perspectives on shrinks will either go... It's all great, it's all good, they're all fantastic, and everything, this should definitely be done for everybody. Everybody should be doing this, it's magnificent. Or... You don't get a lot about these The polar opposite, especially in Michael Bay films. Exactly. All Shrinks are a bunch of bull hockey. They're trying to get you to show your emotions, and then they just take all your money. Yeah. Now, this seems to be coming at it from the angle of, here is one kind of of approach, or they, they show two neither of which serve any purpose for Will. They're impersonal, they're somewhat too invasive too early on. Absolutely. They're patronising. It's it's never specifically stated what the first 
psychologist is practicing but it seems to be a very traditional form of psychoanalysis so like your freudian approach you know dark wood offices leather couches lots of certificates yeah uh jacket and tie lots of notes etc etc and will shreds him and the hypnotherapist can sod off the degree of unprofessionality from that guy. Honestly, I know it's kind of framed that way on purpose. And there is actually a deleted scene where Will asks Jerry and Tom to be present in the therapy sessions, which the, whenever I saw this one before then, I was like, no, no, why are they in the room? That's just not acceptable. Hmm. Um, but it would appear that that was something that he'd actually Which is why Sean makes things different by sending them away. Exactly. He does that. He also, when he's in the classroom, he's he's uh, humorously dismissive of Freud. Hmm. So he, he makes it clear that he has a different type of approach. And although, again, it's never specifically stated what he's practicing, Will refers to it as counselling. And his approach seems to be very person-centred, which is uh, the approach of a guy in the 50s called Carl Rogers, who is who I've studied and who my type of training is is based on. So it warms my heart to see that represented well. (laughs) Albeit that there are things Sean does which are like, no. What, grabbing your uh, patient by the throat? Yeah, they frown on that. They do. Oddly enough. Okay. Oddly enough. It, wa- it wasn't intentional. No. Uh, Sean does say something in an offhand way uh, to his class, clearly not meaning it, which is, uh, nail them while they're vulnerable, that's my motto, regarding, you know, how will you get your patients to sleep with you? And it's like, ha, 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 oh, that's disgusting and sleazy, and he clearly doesn't mean it. And then Jerry turns up, and you're like, um... But he would sleep with his students oh, while they're yes. vulnerable. Absolutely. He, and it's a really great way, I don't know if they even intended it to, to, to outline the difference between that Sean would make jokes about Jerry's terrible behaviour that he wouldn't consider to be out of order. There's a mirroring scene here uh, coming up where, um, I, I never noticed it before, but when, when Jerry takes Sean to a really nice restaurant to sell him Will... There's, you know, they've got this snifter of brandy and there's a lovely fire behind them. It is a really well-appointed place. You never see the uh, waiting staff, but they're sort of, you know, very professional. It's, it would be considered silver service in this, uh, in this country. But then later on, when Jerry comes to meet Sean on his turf, it's in an Irish pub. It's, you know, standard drinking hole. And Jerry, like a fool, orders a Perrier. <laughs> Just to show how out of his depth he is, uh, and uh, um, the and sort of try again tries to talk to the uh, guy behind the bar, and, and it's like he's speaking another language. Mm. That scene in the restaurant, actually, I noticed something uh, this time that I'd not picked up on before. It outlines very neatly the difference between Jerry and Sean and their approach. And you said you don't see the waiting staff. You do once a waiter turns up and asks them if they want coffee. You see them at the waist level. Yeah, you don't see their you don't faces. don't see their faces. Yeah, yeah, no, but you, you see them interact. Jerry ignores the waiter. Mm-hmm. He uses a hand gesture to say no. And Sean communicates. And Sean makes eye contact with him and actually speaks to him and says just a little one. Yeah. 
I've said before the uh, the way uh, you treat waiting staff and people you don't have to be nice to is a really good indicator of what kind of person you are. Mm, absolutely, and also the the fact that Jerry refers to the fact that he's already tried Will with five other. Uh, therapists and Sean names some, which mm. indicates that he Freedom. he's a professional. He knows who the people in his field are in his area, and he also, from his reaction, knows perfectly well that none of them would be any use with Will. So Jerry, at that point, cites a uh, an Indian guy, Dots Not Feathers, who uh, uh, you know came up with incredible uh, theorem, and the uh, you know says this could be this kid, and. Sean's like, okay, so these guys got potential. But in the second scene, which actually happened several uh, a while later, they they go back to sort of the the the, the citing. What if Einstein hadn't had? A break. What if Einstein had been stuck doing a shitty job and wasn't able to study physics? Uh, even you know he was able to juggle being a patent clerk uh, and doing his best work then at the same time. But it's a very specific kind of job which will allow you to do that. Some jobs might wear you down on a daily basis so much you might not be able to, and your potential could just go to waste. And to mirror. What Jerry's suggesting is, you know, he could be uh, this Indian guy, he could be Einstein. Sean cites Ted Kaczynski, the uh, Unabomber, somebody who did have the potential and just cracked because what Sean's pointing out is Will needs to be functioning before he does anything. He needs to deal with all of this stuff he's got weighing him down or he will, given all the opportunities in the world, still crumble. And when Will and Sean first talk, there's a lot of testing and pushing on Will's part. He's trying to mess with uh, Sean, but there's a kind of a, an uncertainty and a grudging respect when it turns out that this guy is from Southie, unlike the rest of them. But he hones in on the painting, and I always thought that um, that Will was overstepping the mark regarding his assessments of uh, uh, Sean's painting and just reading far too much into the colours as uh, Will fucks with him to, uh, to to get a rise out of him. But looking at the painting and the way that Sean looks at the painting, it occurs to me that Will was, to some degree, on the money regarding the fact that when Sean painted it, whether it was paint by number or not, it was expressing the turmoil he was feeling at the mm. time. Yeah, well the, the reaction that he has at that point, which is explosive and uncharacteristic incredibly unprofessional and Sean is well aware of that fact but he wouldn't have had that reaction were he not, at least to some degree, accurate. Yeah. You paint that? Yeah. You paint uh-uh. Do you sculpt? No. You like art? You like music? It's a real piece of shit. Oh, well, tell me what you really think. Oh, I'm just a the linear and impressionistic mix makes a very muddled composition. It's also a Winslow Homer ripoff, except you got Whitey uh, rowing the boat there. Well, that's odd one, eh? It wasn't very good. That's not really what concerns me, though. What concerns you? Just the coloring. You know what the real bitch of it is? It's paint by number. Is it color by number? Because the colors are fascinating to me. Are they really? What you about bet. that? I think you're about one step away from cutting your fucking ear off. Really? Oh, yeah. I think I should move to the south of France, change my name to Vincent. You ever heard the saying, any port in a storm? Yeah. Yeah, maybe that means you. In what way? Well, maybe you're in the middle of a storm, a big fucking storm. Yeah. 
The sky's falling on your head, the waves are crashing over your little boat, the oars are about to snap. You're just pissing your pants, you're crying for the harbor, so maybe you do what you gotta do to get out. You know, maybe you became a psychologist. Bingo. That's it. Let me do my job now. You start with me. Come on. Maybe you married the wrong woman. Maybe you should watch your mouth. Watch it right there, Chief, all right? That's it, isn't it? You married the wrong woman. What happened? Would she leave you? Was she, you know, banging some other guy? If you ever disrespect my wife again, I will end you. I will fucking end you. Got that, Chief? Time's up. And this leads on to uh, Sean's monologue in the park. They, you know, they, they go, well, we're not, we're not doing this absolutely chronologically as to events that happen in the film. We can't. We go, There's too much back and forth. But we want to keep it to a certain degree of linearity because certain events knock on to the others. And this is one of the finest three-minute pieces of interpersonal drama put to film all in a soliloquy. It's, it's, a, it's a conversation between two men where one of them doesn't speak. Uh, it is fearsome and it's vulnerable and wise and unflinching, and it's it's pretty much unchanged from the uh, the way the original script was uh, was written. But Williams makes it his own. There's such authenticity and weight behind what he's saying, and it's a concentrated dose of life perspective and empathy, punching at the wall that Will has constructed around himself. I agree. I I have very little in the way of notes on this bit because I, I can't do anything but sit and watch for this scene. Um, but the, the fact that they don't do this in the office, Sean takes him out to the park and they sit and look out at the water. He's taken Will to a place of peace and calm to show him what peace and calm can feel like. And then he demonstrates through the things that he talks about that he is willing to be vulnerable himself and in a way that says to Will it's okay for you to be vulnerable too because where he's grown up he's never had anybody show him that it is okay for a man to do that what Sean ends up doing for Will is what Jerry and those other therapists try to force on him, which is a, a paternal figure, a paternal role, but he does it through leading by example. Through telling him things about himself that open him up to hurt as a way of taking him by the hand and leading him through that door. There's a gentle firmness to what he says. He imbues his words with a sense of assurance and safety that Will has been lacking, whilst at the same time conveying his own vulnerabilities in language Will can completely understand. He's not going to control it to the point where Will will be hurt and he will be protected. If that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. And the other thing is as well, is in his placing of boundaries, 
because the other thing that he doesn't do, which is what Jerry does to some extent and then gets frustrated by, is the, this is your oyster, you do whatever you want and there is no framework here. When they go back to the office for the first session after that, the first thing he says to him is no smoking. And that's the first boundary he set. Also the perimeter of he has to wait out the full hour. Yeah. And he has to be on time. Mm, absolutely. And what those boundaries can provide in a, a therapeutic setting is a sense that someone cares about you enough to make rules for you. Because that's the other thing. If somebody has come from a childhood where nobody gave a shit enough to say, don't smoke, it's bad for you. Be to this place on time. These are rules that other people will judge you by and it's important that you learn them. And disregard them later on if you choose to, but learn that they are important to people and it will make a a difference how you're perceived. And it can mean a lot to some people who've not had that in their lives to be given that framework. Structure. Yeah. thought about what you said to me the other day about my painting. Ah. Stayed up half the night thinking about it. Something occurred to me. I fell into a deep, peaceful sleep and haven't thought about you since. You know what occurred to me? No. You're just a kid. You don't have the faintest idea what you're talking about. Why, thank you. It's all right. You've never been out of Boston. Nope. So if I asked you about art, you'd probably give me the skinny on every art book ever written. Michelangelo. I know a lot about him. Life's work, political aspirations, him and the Pope, sexual orientation, the whole works, right? I bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You've never actually stood there and looked up at that beautiful ceiling. Seen that. If I ask you about women, Probably give me a syllabus of your personal favorites. You may have even been laid a few times. But you can't tell me what it feels like to wake up next to a woman and feel truly happy. You're a tough kid. When I ask you about war, you'd probably uh, throw Shakespeare at me, right? Once more into the breach, dear friends. But you've never been near one. You've never held your best friend's head in your lap and watch him gasp his last breath looking to you for help. I ask you about love. Probably quote me a sonnet. But you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable. Known someone that could level you with her eyes feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you who could rescue you from the depths of hell and you wouldn't know what it's like to be her angel to have that love for her be there forever through anything through cancer and you wouldn't know about sleeping sitting up in a hospital room for two months holding her hand because the doctors could see in your eyes that the terms visiting hours don't apply to you 
You don't know about real loss, because it only occurs when you love something more than you love yourself. I doubt you've ever dared to love anybody that much. I look at you, I don't see an intelligent, confident man. I see a cocky, scared, shitless kid. But you're a genius, Will. No one denies that. No one could possibly understand the depths of you. But you presume to know everything about me because you saw a painting of mine. You ripped my fucking life apart. You're an orphan, right? Do you think I'd know the first thing about how hard your life has been? How you feel? Who you are? Because I read Oliver Twist. Does that encapsulate you? Personally, I don't give a shit about all that. Because you know what? I can't learn anything from you. I can't read in some fucking book. Unless you want to talk about you. Who you are. And I'm fascinated. I'm in. But you don't want to do that, do you, sport? You're terrified of what you might say. You move, Chief. Mini Driver as Skylar uh, amazed me. I'd already seen her in uh, Gross Point Blank, and uh, she was going to be in Tarzan the year after this. Uh, And uh, also, I hadn't seen it at the time, but uh, she was in Princess Mononoke about this same point. And this was the epicenter of Mini Driver's career. She's been in a lot of stuff since, but these roles, she was firing on all cylinders. She's luminous. She comes across as genuine and smart and compassionate with a natural wit. There's a sharpness about her. And her delivery is funny and, again, genuine. And we're going to be doing a show on Gross Point Blank. Uh, so, folks, you might want to track that one down. It's um, black comedy about an assassin. If you're a fan of Deadpool, it, it's a predecessor. But she has a casual vulnerability, especially regards her education. She picked up on Will's disgust with uh, Clark for uh, spending $150,000 on uh, education he could have gotten for a buck fifty in late fees at the public library. But she tells him, you know, I'm having a very expensive education, just in case you weren't entirely clear about that one with me being in a Harvard bar. So she's she's not so much testing him as just saying, you know, I, I picked that one up and it was my parents. And then she sort of lays down the fact that they aren't here anymore and that she's trying to get, you know, the, the, do the best she can. But she comes across as very much somebody who had a life and had a future and was looking forward to growing up and going to school and then had her father taken away from her. I think, from, does that suggest that her mother was also taken away at a younger age? No, she specifically talks about her dad and she's was 13 when that happened. I think her mum's still around. I right. don't think she says she's lost both her parents. Okay. But she specifically says later on, 
that she'd give up all of the money and the privilege and the education just for one more day with him, which always resonates well with audiences because it tells you that there's a purity to that character, uh, humanity. Again, simple moves, but you get to know Skylar very well in a short space of time. You get her humor, you get her uh, uncertainty about him and kind of fascination with him. And then the fact that she's clearly a capable woman who's going to be able to do well on her own without, with or without him. Mm. Much well, like Tessa Thompson in Creed. Yeah, yeah, no, very true. Well, like Bianca, she's authentic. She is honest. And that's partly to contrast with his... Lying. Withholding of truths. Yeah. And then lying. Yeah. <laughs> but more importantly, his inability to be honest with himself. Skylar is not... She's, she is intelligent, but more importantly, she is emotionally self-intelligent. She is in touch with her emotions. She may not always be able to uh, explain them, but she can express them. And when they have their fight, it seems pretty apparent that she is not expecting the outcome of this to be that he will shut her down and leave, at least not quite so quickly. Yeah. That she is used to being allowed to express emotions in a raw, honest way and have that listened to and responded to by somebody who is doing something similar. It goes south very quickly for her, and so when she breaks down in tears, it's clear she thought she was trying to help him and that she doesn't know quite how she should have responded if it's not with trying to help him. If she cares about him, that's the natural inclination. Mm. I noticed that he only ever communicates through payphones as well. That Obviously, that's a weird thing now, especially, because now everyone has first cell phones and then smartphones. Um but back in 1998, especially if you were shit poor, you might not have a phone line. But it occurred to me as well that he only knows four people, all of whom he sees on a daily basis anyway. He never needs to call them, so he doesn't have a landline in his house. And he probably has a payphone around the corner he can go to if he really needs it. It's just he minimizes the contact abilities to the outside world because he can't afford to, doesn't need to, doesn't want to, and gets used to not having. Very specifically as well, it's not so much that he can't call other people. They can't call they him. They can't call him. He decides when and who to call, and exactly. it's always from a payphone. Exactly. It'd be difficult to do that now. Well, it, it would be feasible to just not have a mobile. People would think you were weird, but you could do it. Hmm. Uh, I love Sean's perspective on perfection. Uh, in fact, I believe I've cited it on this show before uh, when I've expressed to people, don't use the P word. And I'm, I'm now seeing it, since I said that for the first time, I'm now seeing it more and more. Like when discussing films that are that have real problems, a critic will lean on, it's not a perfect movie. We know it's not a perfect movie. You've just gone through problem after problem. Saying it's not a perfect movie suggests that there is an expectation that you could sit down in front of, say, Bumblebee and expect perfection. Or enter the Spider-Verse. Or Wonder Woman. You do yourself an injustice as a critic to even suggest such a thing. Because even if Wonder Woman was, quote-unquote, 
perfect in the eyes of many, many critics. You can bet your sweet ass there would be someone who had a problem with it. Ergo, nothing can possibly be perfect. I'm going to give this film four stars. Ah, so not perfect then. No, because five stars doesn't mean perfect. Five stars means excellent. Five, four, three, two, one. Excellent, great, average, okay, bad. That's all five stars equates to. There's no star rating for perfect because it doesn't exist. Humanity itself has a really unhealthy relationship with perfection because it's tied with winning and specifically coming first as well. So anything other than coming first is not perfection. You know, the further away from first you are, that's the measure of how imperfect you are. There's not enough premium placed on doing really well. Being first is not a good measure of perfection anyway because it's only ever going to be subjective. You're only ever going to be first in comparison with how the next person down did. And it's a brittle, very super-focused version of what you're first at because if you're super-first at one thing, there's going to be a lot of things in your life that you are lacking in. Absolutely. So... Like I said, the idea of being, yeah, pretty good is undervalued. And it's something I think that if we're going to move away from the extremism we're currently experiencing right now, where everything has to be the most awesome experience in the history of ever or absolute Satan spawn cod shit, Mm -hmm. uh, then, yeah, pretty good or it's got problems is a mature stance to take. Like, it's got problems. I like this about it. I don't like this about it. It's enjoyable for these reasons. Flawed for these. We are all works in progress, and the things that we create are timestamps on that work in progress. Hmm. And saying I'm not perfect, or he's not perfect, or she's not perfect, always needs to be followed up with nobody is. Just to remind people that nobody is. Hmm. But yeah, perfect for each other. I've experienced that. And to that end, I'm exceptionally lucky because that is rare. We won. <laughs> we totally won. So did you grow up around here then? Not far south, Boston. <sighs> Still glad for my win. Yeah, no, look at you, you're so happy. <laughs> and what was that like then? It was, you know, normal, I guess. Nothing special. Have you got a lot of brothers and sisters? Do I have a lot of brothers and sisters? That's what I said. Well, Irish Catholic, what do you think? Right. <laughs> right. How many? Bob, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. Why? Go on. What, five? <laughs> Seven? Eight? How many? I have 12 big brothers. You do not I, I swear to God, brothers. I swear to God. I'm no. lucky 13 right here. Do you know all their names? Yeah, they're my brothers. What are they called? Marky, Ricky, Danny, Terry, Mikey, Davey, Timmy, Tommy, Joey, Robbie, Johnny, and Brian. Say it again. Marky, Ricky, Danny, Terry, Mikey, Davey, Timmy, Tommy, Joey, Robbie, Johnny, and Brian. And Willie. Willie? Yeah. Will. Wow. Do you still see all of them? Yeah, well, they all live in Southie. I'm I'm living with three of them right now. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, I'd like to meet them. Yeah, we'll do that. Almost everything Will just told her is an outright lie. 
Now, we're far enough in the film to understand that he has a certain life that he would want to keep her distant from, but it's not really clear until the end when we understand quite how much he's gone through, enough to comprehend that he wouldn't want to give her one end of a piece of string and tell her to pull on that and watch it all come tumbling out. He's got this defensive armour up the whole time, and that manifests itself right here as straight-up lying. Before the actual horrible breakup with uh, Will and Skylar, there's a, a scene where they're trading stories, and there's a, a nervous look on Will's face when she starts uh, telling her story about Mary and Paddy, because she's talking about Irish people, and she's not of Southy descent. And uh, so Will's like, oh shit, don't say anything that's going to make my three friends, the only three people I give a toss about, dislike you, because I really want these two parts of my world to conjoin. Mm. But she does fit in with them quite well. Her, oh yeah, her, her joke's fantastic for that in, context. Absolutely, and it's it, it's the this is the power of three about the telling the story as if it's from first person perspective mm. as well. Will tells a joke to Sean where he says it as if he was present and Sean calls him on it immediately. Have you ever been on a plane? Because it's established that Will has had very little experience. Exactly. And then Chucky does exactly the same thing. It's never entirely clear whether he's talking about a real uncle who had a real altercation with a state trooper, but he could quite easily be bullshitting. And then Sean does the same exact thing in the bar with the same joke that Will told him in the session. The point being, doing that is not in and of itself wrong, it's the context. Will is using it as a deflection method. Also, stories are there to connect you to people. That you, know, you, you, you tell a story, you tell it well, then um, you share something with people. And Casey Affleck comes in, and th- th- they were, they were, he was told it during the take, interrupt Ben as much as you can and needle him as you would a big brother. And he does. And then when Sean tells his joke later on, there's that just complete stranger in the bar. is like, bullshit, you never did that. And it's like, doesn't matter how good the story is, someone's not going to like it. It's a constant in life, even as the best storyteller in the world. Mm, indeed. There's something after that meeting as well um, that I noticed when they leave the bar and they're going out to the car. Chucky hugs Skylar. Hmm. She's a stranger. He's just met her, Mm -hmm. and he hugs her with a relatively relaxed attitude. Mm -hmm. Then he turns around to Will, and there's a brief moment where you think he's going to hug Will too, and then he gives him a punch on the arm and a little bit of a royster-doyster, and it's like, good grief, you have known each other your entire lives. Would you just hug him, for God's sake? Now, it's, it's not entirely clear whether this is because they can't hug each other because of the parameters that their life has set for them. Or whether Chucky is fine with hugging people, but he knows Will will respond badly to it. But if Chucky won't hug Will, that means no one No one will. else will, yeah, exactly. Which makes the hug at the end very meaningful. Yeah. There was a deleted scene with Chucky here, and it's one of two bits that Gus Van Zandt uh, wishes he could put back in, in in hindsight. The other one was the story about the cat uh, at the uh, beginning, but that feels like just one too many apocryphal tales. But uh, this one, it's Skylar comes to talk to Chucky. It doesn't really advance the story. Their relationship seems to exist only in this deleted scene because they never really talk again mm. because of the breakup, and then she goes... 
but I, I like it because it's funny and they have a nice um, they to them will matters. And whenever Will's not in the room, everyone needs to be asking, where's Will? It's very much a, this movie is about this guy. But it's nice to see them both existing when he's not on screen. Yes, this is true. Same as Jerry and uh, Sean do. Yeah, but as we said when we were watching it, it doesn't tell you anything that you can't infer from other scenes on your own. Yeah. It's always best to trim, especially if a scene just reiterates something people already know. Sorry to drag you away from the cartoons. Uh all right. I got a little bit of the Irish flows. Had this all worked out on the way over here. Yeah, put some oh. clothes on. Oh, I'm not wearing clothes. Thanks, Father. Thanks a lot. That's spiritual advice if ever I had yeah, it. No, He's looking after you as well. For. You're not wearing pants. <laughs> Thanks, I appreciate it. Um, no, the thing is, I... I don't really think that, it, that I'm being nosy and crying and, you know, trying to get information out, but I don't understand Will. I don't understand the weird lies and the strange distance that he always manages to maintain and how you can ask him a question and he can MacGyver his way out of any kind of answer and start talking about, you know, the weather. <laughs> it's... So you got to understand. I mean, I lie to women all the time. You know what I mean? I don't mean nothing. It's just, you know, it's just my way. The way I do business. It's the way I conduct my affairs. You know what I mean? Last week, Morgan brought these girls down from Roslindale. Told them I was a cosmonaut. <laughs> nice. Right? I don't know why you're laughing. Morgan tried to tell me he was a Canadian porno star. They believe me. <laughs> I got laid. Morgan had to walk home. But I don't know. Will's not usually like that. You know, he's not usually the guy saying that stuff. Or, I don't know. I mean, look. I know Will a long time. And I've seen him with every girl he's ever been with. But I, I've never seen him like this before, ever, like how he's with you. No. Yeah? yeah. Really? Why should I believe a word you say? <laughs> See, I don't know what you're worried about. I mean, you know, he's real whipped. Someone's always coming around here, trailing some new kill. Says I seen your picture on a hundred dollar bill. What's a game a chance to hear him as one? Real skill, so glad to meet you, Angelus. Picking up the ticket shows there's money to be made. That's the history of the trade Did you add up all the cards left to play To see you roll and sign up with evil Elliot Smith here whose work turns up repeatedly throughout the film, adds an unanticipated note of sharp melancholy, redoubled as time went on, and very pointedly a certain scene in The Royal Tenenbaums, because a few years after the release of both films, he died. I can make you satisfied in everything you do 
So when Will explodes at Skylar, um, I'm inferring here that he hides all of this shit from the world, a world that he considers will judge him on what was done to him. Will is ashamed of his weakness and his unfortunate circumstances, and he's ashamed of his shame, if that makes sense. Mm, Does that all scan? Yeah, it does. I mean, I think there's also an element of not wanting to burden normal people with his abnormal upbringing. Yeah. You weren't tormented as a person. You don't know what this pain is like. I'm not going to bring it into your life. Yeah. It also seems like just talking about it, he is suffering from PTSD, which is something you can get when you've never been within 100 miles of a battlefield. You can get it from a car crash. You can get it from somebody committing suicide nearby to you. You can get it from being mugged. Anything which makes your brain panic can render you with a measure of PTSD. And for Will, who was beaten and abused, it's revisiting it whenever he thinks about it and has to say it out loud. Yeah, complex PTSD, I would I would say. But the, the fact that he can talk to Sean because he knows that Sean is aware of that being a thing. Mm. He doesn't know until fairly late on that Sean has personal experience of being abused by a parental figure. But he knows he comes from the same environment. He knows that he clicks with Sean in a way that he can't quite put his finger on. And that's why. Because he can he can say these things to Sean and Sean won't react with shock, pity scorn, judgment, any of the things that he is terrified of, of getting from everyone else. I mean, it's it's never evident whether Chucky knows anything about where he came from. I think he's caught wind of it. I think he probably has too. And I also think that there's a degree of, if if he doesn't know how serious it was, then it might be something that he could consider just a, a matter of degree from what they all experienced in relatively rough households in a relatively rough neighborhood. What am I so scared of? Well, what aren't you scared of? You live in this safe little world where no one challenges you and you're scared shitless oh, to do anything don't, else. Because don't tell me about my world. Change. Don't tell me about my world. I mean, you just want to have your little fling with, like, the guy from the other side of town. Then you're going to go off to Stanford. You're going to marry some rich prick who your parents will approve of and just sit around with the other trust fund babies and talk about how you went slumming too once. Why are you saying this? What is your obsession with this money? My father died when I was 13 and I inherited this money. You know, I think every day I wake up and I wish that I could give it back. That I would give it back in a second if it meant I could have one more day with him. But I can't. And that's my life and I deal with it. So don't put your shit on me when you're the one that's afraid. I'm afraid. What, what, what am I afraid of? What the fuck am I afraid of? You're afraid of? of me. You're afraid that I won't love you back. You know what? I'm afraid too. 
Fuck it, I want to give it a shot, and at least I'm honest with you. I'm not honest with you? No, what about your 12 brothers? No, you're not going. You're not leaving. What do you want to know? What? That I don't have 12 brothers? Yeah. That I'm a fucking orphan? No, yeah. you don't want to hear I that. I didn't know no, that. No, you don't want to hear that. You don't want to hear that I got it. fucking cigarettes put out of me when I was a little kid. Oh, yeah, I didn't know that. this that. isn't fucking surgery, that the motherfucker stabbed me. You don't want to hear that shit, Skylar. I don't, do want to hear Don't tell that. me you want to hear that I shit. I want to hear it because I want to help you, because I help want to be with you. Help me? What the fuck? What do I got? A fucking sign on my back that says save me? No. Do I look like I need that? No, God, I just want to be with don't you because bullshit. I love you. Don't bullshit me. Don't you fucking bullshit me. I love you. I want to hear you say that you don't love me. Because if you say that, then I won't call you. And I won't be in your life. I don't love you. It's an immensely powerful scene because everything, all the information that we need to know as to why this hurts so much for both of them has been wound and wound up throughout the film, creating a tension that might feel lighter than it actually was until you get the full unwind here. Mini Driver's performance and Matt Damon's phenomenal in this scene. But if we cut back to Will and Sean in his office, well, Sean's looking at Will's file. The one shot that reprises the opening sequence is fragmented kaleidoscope visuals, which was achieved by putting a prismatic piece of glass in front of the camera to split the uh, image into all of these little shards. Struck me at the moment that the only other moment we see it when Sean's talking about his abusive father you get to see the guy climbing the stairs and then there's a kind of a fade down to this prismatic view it's also tears it's looking it's looking at the chaos of your own life through a veil of tears now I don't know if that was intentional but it seems to me that if a boy was watching his father coming up the stairs uh, just Getting ready to beat the living fuck out of him, he would probably cry and be ashamed of that fact. Mm. So Will pushes Skylar away violently. Then Will does the same to Jerry, spitefully embarrassing him and leaving his benefactor, let's not forget, on his knees. And like I said, again, Skarsgård's performance, I think, comes to a head here. The uh, Him being crushed, because we've seen him so pompous so often. So seeing him on his knees in this like big fat old t-shirt clutching these burnt papers and saying he wishes he'd never met Will because it makes him feel inferior. They were going for um, Mozart and Salieri here. As in, not many people can tell the difference between Salieri and Mozart, but Salieri can tell the difference. Yeah, and Mozart can tell the difference. Yeah. Yeah. The... There's three things 
that are going on in this scene as well that I think are, are really significant hooks on Will and who he is at this point. The fact that he's pulled the stunt with sending Chucky to an interview on his behalf. He tells Jerry about this. And if you see the expression on his face when he tells him, I sent my chief negotiator, that is a child who came up with a smart solution to something, or what he thinks is a smart solution to something, and he's proud of himself. And Jerry shoots him down and pours scorn on it. And what he's demonstrating when he sets fire to the the theorem that he's proved is that this is meaningless to him. He can burn this and it will make no difference to his life. He could theoretically, yeah, go and do it again, but what he's trying to kind of stick the knife in with Jerry is this doesn't mean anything to me. It means all this to you, but it means nothing to me. But here's the thing, Will's own life is meaningless to him. And he can burn that down and not feel that things are any different. When he gets the opportunity to go and work for the NSA and then comes back with this massive screed, comedically detailed, Mm -hmm. as to why he wouldn't want to work for the NSA, because effectively he'd be screwing over people from his own neighbourhood. And like I say, it's ridiculously detailed. And this is done to indicate that he's got the kind of mind that will run down courses of possibility and slot things into place and go, well, this will happen, this will happen, this will happen. And he is of a particular negative bent where he will put into place the most likely worst possibilities will happen. And I can very much identify with the idea of a mind that works so fast that you can reach conclusions way before anyone else can. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it is deeply frustrating waiting for them to catch up. Yeah. And... When he, you know, yells at Jerry, just having to watch you fumble around and fuck it up, I can really relate to that as well. Specifically, when people are working in an area that I would consider to be one of expertise for me, it's galling and frustrating, especially since I am of such meager means myself, and it is by no means a pleasant or superior mindset to be in when your sensitivity levels are through the roof and everything hurts. And everything bothers you. Which is why sometimes people like that come off as brusque and hurtful. This is why I set myself the task of always attempting to be a gentleman. To counteract these feelings of frustration. To make people feel as comfortable as possible. And to attempt to make amends when I overstep the mark. And I often fail. But I always try. For people who are very, very capable of thinking fourth dimensionally that they can play out all of those parallel universes and work out which one is the one most likely to get them to where they want to be. It's fine to think fourth dimensionally, but when you try to live fourth dimensionally, you end up being terrified of all of those parallel universes at once. Yeah, which is why he has chosen such a simple, straightforward quantifiable boring life mm. a that's part of it yeah. life where he knows exactly what will happen and that nothing is going to threaten the balance of it because any risk on his part any venture out of it anything beyond solitude and keeping his life compartmentalized because he doesn't read his math books with his friends 
He reads his math books alone. He goes to bars and batting cages with his friends. Mm. And then he tries to mix sort of those two together with Skylar. And then he grudgingly accepts Sean's uh, help until the point where it becomes clear that he's actually benefiting from it. But he's a guy who compartmentalizes for safety and sticks with the quantifiable. And yet, all the way back at the beginning, he's sneaking himself this glory as this contradictory life where part of him is always trying to reach out from this safe little boxed-in walled garden that he's created for himself. as simple, plain and unchallenging. Mm. He is a young man who feels things very, very strongly and doesn't acknowledge them. Mm. And part of that, I think, is because there is there is a bliss that a person feels when they're doing the thing that that for them is natural and is the the thing that they are good at and that they really, really want to do and that it provides them with a challenge but not an obstacle that they can follow down that road and it feels like they are constantly improving with very little friction to hold them back in pursuing that particular path. And one of the things, when Will is trying to explain to Skylar why he thinks the way he does or why it is that that maths is so easy for him and, and so straightforward for him, he's that's one of the few moments that he is honest and vulnerable and she responds to that very positively. He's talking about the fact that maths is something that he can just do and music is something that he just can't. And there's, there, are, there is a theory that there are numerous types of intelligence and that we have a tendency to focus only on logical and, and strategic intelligence. But that there are many, you know, there are multiple different types, and they they deal with different things. So somebody emotional who has, and creative, exactly, and, and somebody and... who has, for example, great physical intelligence that they just know where their body is meant to be, and they can do certain sports, and and there are things that they can do with their physicality that the average person just couldn't because they don't have those neural connections. So the best WWE wrestlers. Yes. Yeah. You're smiling, but yeah, absolutely. If you if you think about it like this, all intelligence means is how many neural connections you have in that particular area of expertise and how fast you can make them work. That positive response that he gets from Skylar when he is open about that, there's a moment where he almost seems afraid of how she's going to react. And I think the first thing she says is it's not fair. And for a moment, I thought she's talking about the fact that he's so good at this and she has to work at it. Mm-hmm. But she's not. She's talking about... Her circumstances, I've, been here for four I've got years to and I've only just leave now. Yeah. yeah. But it kind of... The, the fleeting expression over his face of, of fear... And he, Matt Damon pulls this off numerous times throughout the film, actually, where somebody says something to him. There's an expression on his face that says he is afraid of how they're about to react or he feels guilty about how they're reacting. Jerry uh, saying about how I wish I'd never met you because then I could sleep at night. That's a mirror of Sean saying, I stopped thinking about you and a deep and peaceful sleep came over me. 
and one of them heaps guilt upon Will. It is your fault I feel this way. And the other one relieves him of guilt and says, son, you be how you are. Doesn't make any difference to me, not in this moment. Will expresses how he wants to, or is anticipating calling things off with Skylar to Sean because he's thinking, well, this isn't going to work and she's moving on. And when he says, well, you found me, that is him living in the moment Mm -hmm. and not freaking out about the future. That is a moment of uh, him being unfettered. A lot of this movie is about removing the boundaries and boxes around himself and other people helping him with that yeah. to free him. Yeah, which actually ties in with the chap I mentioned earlier, Carl Rogers, his theories about human development and human growth were that everybody has the potential for this amazing growth and development and the ability to, to reach their form of self-expression, their form of self-actualization, and what therapy should be about is removing the obstacles to that growth so that you can develop in the most natural and free way possible. He believed everybody would develop anyway, but that they would have to grow around those obstacles and that would cause them to end up being in emotional shapes that cause them pain. There's a deleted scene when Skylar leaves uh, where Will finds the Pudge Fisk baseball card, which uh, relates to the uh, earlier baseball game anecdote that uh, Sean gave him about meeting his first wife and giving up on the uh, this most amazing baseball game that ever got played in 1975 to go and meet his future wife. Um, and Will finds a, a Pudge Fisk baseball card and it's intercut with Skylar getting on the plane and leaving and it's kind of like, ah, you see, you're not going and grabbing the girl. And it, it, there, it there seems like a missed opportunity that uh, Will is not seizing the day. But the way they finally um, shot it, he's just sitting on a bench thinking about her and she's getting on an uh, airplane and flying off. And this is where in every other romantic comedy... He's racing to the airport to mm-hmm. stop her. But there's from a reason on the plane. he doesn't. He's not ready yet. And if he grabbed her now and said, "Don't go," or "I'll go with you," he'd be acting out of fear. Yeah, he's not yet Lloyd Dobler at the end of um, 
say anything. Mm. And it's not, no, sometimes it's a really nice moment. It's been played, overplayed to death. So now anything that playfully subverts it or challenges it is worthy of note for me. And then we get that fantastic little speech from Ben Affleck as Chucky to Will about you need to not be here and I hope that you aren't going to be here. And it's one of absolute love and respect. And it is still delivered in this macho Boston style. You know, he's he's still very, you know, blokey about it. You're still here in 20 years. I'll, I'll fucking, kill you. fucking kill you. And let me tell you, in 20 years time, I'm going to be fucking Batman. A Batman who kills. Why is he suddenly Australian? Oh, oi. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is held in sharp contrast with poisoned fandom. If you look at the end of 2017 when fandom died because of uh, the, the reactions to The Last Jedi just buried it six feet under, these are men who want a piece of media to dance to their tune, to be theirs, to gratify them, to tick all of their boxes, to exist for them, to confirm their Snoke theory, to provide them with the storyline they wanted. They don't care whether it gives anything to anyone else. It didn't give them what they wanted. Chucky knows he wants Will to stick around on some level. He likes this. He likes Will a lot. That's manifestly so. What he says to Will is self-sacrificing in the best way. Just a very simple, I love you, man. Just get the fuck out of here. And it's clearly Chucky's decision for him and Billy and Morgan to get and make Will a car. Because this is the arbiter, the, the symbolic execution of this plan to get the fuck out of here. Will can't move without wheels. He's, he's not going to just get on a train. So this is their desire. He's on the metro, Chucky's which goes round and round. He's circles, not, yeah. You know? Uh, this is Chucky's desire to enable him to move forwards. Yeah. Fandom is not ownership. Neither's friendship, neither's marriage, neither is parenthood. And you could strongly argue that creating something like a book or a film or a play or a song and sending it out into the world to allow people to make what they can of it and to allow it to make what it can of people requires that same selfless giving of wings. To truly love a thing, you need to want to see it flourish. So how's your lady? Ah, she's gone. Gone? Gone where? Uh, med school? Medical school in California? Really? Yeah. What was this? It's like a week ago. That sucks. So, uh, when are you done with those meetings? I think the week after I'm 21. Yeah, they gonna hook you up with a job or what? Yeah, fucking sit in a room and do long division for the next 50 years. Yeah, probably make some nice bank though. Gonna be a fucking lab rat. Better than this shit. Way out of here. I want a way out of here for. I mean, I'm gonna fucking live here the rest of my life. You know, be neighbors. You know, we'll have little kids. Fucking take them a little league together up Foley Field. 
Look, you're my best friend, so don't take this the wrong way. In 20 years, if you're still living here, coming over to my house to watch the Patriots game, still working construction, I'll fucking kill you. That's not a threat. What? That's a fact. I'll fucking kill you. What the fuck are you talking about? Look, you got something none of us have. Oh, come on. Why, why is it always this? I mean, I fucking owe it to myself to do this or that. What if I don't no, want to? No, no, no. Well, fuck you. You don't owe it to yourself. You owe it to me. Tomorrow, I'm gonna wake up and I'll be 50. And I'll still be doing this shit. That's all right, that's fine. I mean, you're sitting on a winning lottery ticket. You're too much of a pussy to cash it in. And that's bullshit. Because I'd do fucking anything to have what you got. So would any of these fucking guys. It'd be an insult to us if you're still here in 20 years. Hanging around here is a fucking waste of your time. You don't know that. I don't? No, you don't know that. Oh, I don't know that. Let me tell you what I do now. Every day I come by your house and I pick you up. And we go out, we have a few drinks and a few laughs and it's great. You know what the best part of my day is? It's for about 10 seconds from when I pull up to the curb and when I get to your door. Because I think maybe I'll get up there and I'll knock on the door and you won't be there. No goodbye, no see you later, no nothing. I'm just left. I don't know much, but I know that. So this film has four truly amazing standout scenes. The one where Sean levels Will regarding the perspective on life and his inexperience. The one where Skylar reaches out to Will and is horribly rebutted. The one where Chucky positions Will. And the one where Sean absolves Will. It's not your fault, which is just coming up now. Because Jerry doubles down on his snobbery to pressurise Sean into forcing Will into a particular box. Uh, he's going on about his fucking Fields medal still. Don't tell him it's okay to be a failure. Yeah. And it feels like Jerry should have grown a little wiser after the uh, realisation uh, a few scenes ago that, uh, that Will symbolised to him a, a state of melancholy, a, a little bit of existentialism. Like, I thought I was the hot shit, but I'm not. But... Not the hottest shit. As Sean points out to him, Jerry is afraid of failure himself. Yeah. And not perfection, i.e. not being the, the best. best and smartest guy in the room, to him feels like failure. Again, I will say this, and I've said it before, rather than trying to get 10 out of 10, an 8, if you're happy, is way better. Mm -hmm. If Jerry could have been happy with his own 8... And been happy to allow Will to Well, be in, in the case of Jerry, he'd have been a nine. Okay. But specifically been happy Second to allow best priest. Will to be a nine himself and not be wanting to push him to perfection. Good point, yeah. It would be a twofold process for Jerry. He would have to accept his place as an eight and he would have to allow Will to be a six, a five, a four, a one. Will's choices should not be considered a reflection of Jerry's self-worth or his achievements. Yeah. The terror of other people at the potential for a child who is gifted to waste what they perceive as their potential mm. does a lot of harm. Almost always to the child. Yeah. But in a pervasive, harmful way, in that it becomes societally acceptable to pressurise this kid in this way. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then you get people talking about, well, you know, we've we all become accepting of falling standards, and you get people talking snootily about participation trophies and things like that. And what's wrong with encouraging our offspring to want to be the best, to want to put? Because it's not for them; it's for you. And yeah, that was ultimately what Jerry was uh, trying to do was to. And I don't even know if he knew this was the case, trying to surf Will to perfection and say, I was the man who did this. Mm. I was the man who discovered this man. This boy, this wunderkind. It was motivated by fragile vanity and anxiety. I brought you in here because I wanted you to help me with the boy, not to run him out. I know what I'm doing with the boy. I don't care if you have a rapport with the boy. I don't care if you have a few laughs, even at my expense, but don't you dare undermine what I'm trying to do here. Undermine. This boy is at a fragile point right now. I do understand. And he is at a fragile point, okay? He's got problems. Well, what problems does he have, Sean? That he's better off as a janitor? That he's better off in jail? Better off hanging out with a bunch of retarded gorillas? Oh, why do you think he does that, Jerry? Do you have any fucking clue why? Hmm? He can handle the problems. He can handle the work, and he obviously handled you. Jerry, listen to me. Listen. Why is he hiding? Why doesn't he trust anybody? Because the first thing that happened to him, he was abandoned by the people who were supposed to love him the oh, most. Oh, come on, don't give me that for you. Oh, crap. no, listen, Jerry, and why does he hang out with those retarded gorillas, as you call them? Because any one of them, if he asked them to, would take a fucking bat to your head, okay? That's called loyalty. Yeah, it's very touchy. And who's he handling? He pushes people away before they have a chance to leave him. It's a defense mechanism, all right? And for 20 years, he's been alone because of that. And if you push him right now, it's going to be the same thing all over again, and I'm not going to let that happen to him. Don't you do that, Sean. What, Jerry? Don't you do that. Don't infect him with the idea that it's okay to quit, that it's okay to be a failure, because it's not okay, Sean. And if you're angry at me for being being successful, for being what you could have been, Sean... I'm not angry at you, Jerry. Oh, yes, you're angry at me, Sean. You resent me. But I'm not going to apologize for any, any success I've had. You're angry at me for doing what you could have done. But ask yourself, Sean. Ask yourself if you want Will to feel that way. If you want him to feel like a failure. Oh, you arrogant shit. That's why I don't come to the goddamn reunions. Because I can't stand that look in your eye. You know, that condescending, embarrassed oh, look. On, you think I'm a failure. I know who I am, and I'm proud of what I do. It was a conscious choice. I didn't fuck up. And you and your cronies think I'm some sort of pity case. You and your kiss-ass chorus following you around going, the field's medal, the field's medal. Why are you still so fucking afraid of failure? <laughs> it's about my medal, is it? Oh, God, I can go home and get it for you. You can have it. Oh, please don't. You, you know what, Jerry? Shove the medal up your fucking ass, all right? Because I don't give a shit about your medal, because I knew you before you were a mathematical god. When you were pimple-faced and homesick and didn't know what side of the bed to piss on. Yeah, you were smarter than me then, and you're smarter than me now, so don't blame me for how your life turned out. It's not my fault. I don't blame you! It's not about you, you mathematical dick! It's about the boy! He's a good kid, and I won't see you fuck him up like you're trying to fuck up me right now. I won't see you make him feel like a failure, too. He won't be a failure, Sean. But, but if you push him, Jerry, if you Sean, ride him... I am what I am today because I was pushed and because I learned to push myself. Is that you? You guess that? Come back. I'll come in. Uh, I was just leaving. But Sean's It's Not Your Fault, how do you interpret that? Because it's just four words repeated and it breaks Will. As in what he's talking about? Yes. Do you think it's just a very simple, straightforward message or is it multi-layered? It's very multi-layered. He's... Okay. Superficially, he's talking about the abuse that Will experienced as a child. 
which is patently not his fault because he was at the mercy of adults. He's also talking about the fact that Will lost his parents in the first place, which couldn't possibly, I don't care what the circumstances were, could not possibly have been his fault, but Will will probably blame himself for anyway, especially considering that it directly resulted in bad things happening to him. And it's incredibly common for children who are having bad things happen to them to somehow try and turn it around onto it being something that they did because otherwise they have to admit that the universe is unfair and that's terrifying to a small child. It's it's almost better in terms of coping mechanisms at that age and at that stage of your life to believe that you are a poisoned, bad, wicked, evil child than to admit that the world is a fucking fucked up place sometimes. Because at least if it's you, you can cope with that. There's everything that's ever happened since then. And while there are obviously things that have happened that Will is responsible for, he needs to hear that message of, it's not your fault all of these threads that have come out of you because of what happened to you that absolutely was not your fault, you can untangle them if you can get your head around the idea that you are not to blame. Because if you still believe that you are to blame, you're retangling those threads every time you look at them. Have you had any uh, experience with that? 20 years of counselling. Yeah, I've seen some pretty awful shit. I mean, have you had any? experience with that personally yeah yeah I have sure ain't good my father was an alcoholic mean fucking drunk he'd come home hammered looking to wail on somebody so I'd provoke him so he wouldn't go after my mother and little brother interesting nights but when he wore his rings he used to just put a, uh, a wrench, a stick, and a belt on the table and just say, choose. Well, I gotta go with the belt there, Vanna. I used to go with the wrench. Why the wrench? Because fuck him, that's why. Your foster father? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, what is it, like, Will has an attachment disorder? Is it all that stuff? Fear of abandonment? Is that why uh, is that why I broke up with Skyla? I didn't know you had. I did. You want to talk about it? No. Hey, Will. I don't know a lot. You see this? All this shit. It's not your fault. All right. It's not your fault. 
not your fault. Don't fuck with me. It's not your fault. Don't fuck with me, all right? Don't fuck with me, Sean, not you. It's not your fault. I remember at the time one of my uh, classmates in film studies stating loudly and obnoxiously that the wrench story was bullshit and that there's no way a child would be beaten with a wrench. And even at the time, I felt to myself, congratulations on never having been abused. And this guy was a colossal asshole. He claimed that animated movies weren't real movies, so their direction was not as valid as live-action directors. Like John Borman, who he had a particular adoration of. So animated films weren't really even films. Nonsense. Complete nonsense, dear boy. What this guy couldn't grasp was that it doesn't matter about the specificity of the abuse. What this loudmouth did prove, however, quite succinctly, was why Will never shared this with other people. Even with his friends, the men he trusted most in the world. It's very difficult for regular people to empathise with something so horrible. And you can carry this kind of thing around with you for the rest of your life as a result. And this is why when you find the right people, being able to open up about this can be immensely freeing. My father used to threaten me with therapy, because in his eyes, if you were seeing a psychiatrist, you were already broken. There was no other help for you. And that was a shameful situation to be in. And I do wish I could go back and tell my younger self, take him up on his offer. See somebody. Or more importantly, allow somebody to see you. goes away and does some lonely thinking and his contentment at the end when he finishes off talking with uh, Sean and then going away and they give each other the, the thumbs up is, I mean, this whole film feels like a tacit endorsement of the right kind of therapy. As you said earlier, it's it's that hitting the middle ground between therapy is fantastic and you sh- everyone should be getting it. A lot of the time people can't afford it or they're not in the right circumstances to obtain it. Like if you're currently on the NHS, your waiting list might be months. Or in some cases, years for some of the more complex types of therapy. Yeah. And Which is an insane amount of time to have to just bear with it and help yourself because nothing else will, will help you. That's frequently for the people under the most pressure uh, an impossible amount of time. The other thing is as well that... It's a prison sentence. But a prison sentence has structure. You're given. Yeah. This is what you do when you're in prison. Like, if you're imprisoned in your own mind and no one can give you the structure that is required to just get you through the day, you could end up trapped in a no-win situation that a lot of people would take prison over. 
When it comes to therapy, there are many, many different approaches and they won't all work for everybody. And there is not one form of therapy that will work for everyone. I believe there is a form of therapy that will work for most people. Like as in, there's one that will work for you might not be the same as everyone else's but there, there is one out there that fits for different people's way of thinking about things and Will specifically has been let down over and over again by systems so any kind of therapy that is using a systematic approach isn't going to work for him because the second it says establishment he'll shut off from it This film was deliberately shaped for the Oscars. It has that sensibility about its promotion that parodies of the Oscars tend to go for. They will focus on the misunderstood genius who's kind of an asshole, just like Amadeus and Rain Man and A Beautiful Mind. His triumphs, but also the people he's connected with and their struggles to prevent him from self-destructing. Almost always a man. Always a man. It's archetypal in that way, which is... Wait. Hillary and Jackie. Okay, there we go. It's the one exception. <laughs> There's Iris, but wasn't she like an evil, villainous murderess? I don't know, I haven't seen it. Mm. It's archetypal in that way, which is unfortunate because that broad generalisation undermines what is a really great film of substance. I am certain, however, that this was moulded into the most prestigious version of itself to court awards and prestige. From the moment the screenplay was picked up, from these two scrappy pups to the aftermath of the victory and the sale of their careers to the silver screen business monster. Miramax played the prestige game for decades, so no wonder Hollywood was quick to distance themselves when they smelled fire in the shape of Harvey's repulsive and long-time pattern of behaviour. And that habit of amputation of rotten limbs to preserve the whole is ultimately a good thing. We want to excise these individuals and hold them to account. It's a shit state of affairs when men weigh in on the situation with less than helpful statements, like Matt Damon did. It's shitter still when they are part of the problem, like Casey Affleck. It's inspiring when men or women speak out and admonish their former co-stars for their simplistic, patronising comments the way that Minnie Driver did. We live in an age where being a prick small or big, is far more publicly visible, and it's going to take a while for everyone to adjust to the concept that whether it's playing grab-ass or a full-on rape, you're going to be held accountable now, judged, and in some cases, cast out of the lives of a lot of people. Because everyone's meter for what constitutes unacceptable is different, and that, again, is a good thing. I personally don't want a higher authority telling me what I can and can't find not cool. Nobody has the right to dictate that hierarchy, male, female, monarch or janitor. And as we found out in 2016, it's not at all 100% career ruining. You could gleefully admit to sexually harassing women and then days later be elected president. But that victory against reason won't stop you from becoming one of the most hated men in history. 
we are allowed to be disgusted with who we want. This is the teething of an advancing civilization. And if we're going to survive, you really can't go wrong with focusing on the two greatest aspects at play here. One, challenging and cleaning up a broken, filthy system. And two, being as wholly supportive to women as possible. That good? Not too Matt Damon-ish? He should just have said, Matt Damon! Damon. <laughs> Honestly, it would have been a better interview if he had. Thinking of he's working up my appetite Looking forward to a little afternoon delight Rubbing sticks and stones together make the sparks ignite And the thought of loving you is getting so excited Skyrockets in flight My God, this song is creepy. So the boys get in this car as the rite of passage into adulthood. And like I say, it equates to the freedom that Chucky just encouraged in him. He can't leave without the wheels. And again, this opens up this box. It opens up the the pen. He's so much of this penning in is self-inflicted. Hmm. He's tied, as I think Sean says, he has ties to nobody. Hmm. He answers to nobody. He He's could go anywhere and do anything. Hmm. And he's kept himself hemmed in for all of these years. And notice that um, as he's leaving, Sean is also packing for a trip. It never really struck me how important that was. That Sean, like uh, Sean, talks to uh, Jerry about the possibility of attending a uh, another um, reunion, which seemingly at MIT they have these every year. He's got his uh, baseball jacket on, the Red Sox, which again ties it back to that baseball speech from before. And that's recapturing that youthful spirit. Steps up to the plate, you know, he's got that weird stand. Yeah, yeah. And then, boom! He clocks it, you know. High, fly ball, on the left field line. 35,000 people on their feet, yelling at the ball, but that's not because Fisk, he's waving at the ball like a madman. Yeah, get over! Get over! Get over! And then it hits a foul pole. Oh, he goes ape shit. And 35,000 fans, you know, they charge the field, you know? Yeah, and he's fucking bored. Oh, no, he's like, get out of the way! Get out of the way! I can't fucking believe you had tickets to that fucking game! Yeah. Did you rush the field? Uh, no, I didn't rush the fucking field. I wasn't there. What? No, I was in a bar having a drink with my future wife. You missed Pudge Fist's home run? Oh, yeah. To have a fucking drink with some lady you never met? Yeah, but you should have seen her. She was a stunner. I don't care if Oh, fucking... no, no, she lit up the room. I don't oh. care if Helena Troy walks oh, into the Helena room. That's Troy. game six. No. Oh, my God. And who are these fucking friends of yours? They let you get away with that? Uh, they had to. What did you say to them? I just slid my ticket across the table and I said, Sorry, guys, I gotta see about a girl. <laughs> I gotta go see about a girl? Yeah. That's what you said? I had. And they let you get away with that? Oh, yeah, they saw in my eyes that I meant it. You're kidding me. No, I'm not kidding you, Will. That's why I'm not talking right now about some girl I saw at about 20 years ago and how I always regretted not going over and talking to her. I don't regret the 18 years I was married to Nancy. I don't regret the six years I had to give up counseling when she got sick. And I don't regret the last years when she got really sick. And I sure as hell don't regret missing a damn game. That's regret. Wow. Would have been nice to catch that game, though. I didn't know Pudge was going to hit a home run. <laughs> and Sean going to travel here suggests that he's going to break away and do something different. Mm. Have some visceral experience the way he was preaching to Will 
that he sorely lacks in his life. Absolutely. And it may be that he doesn't end up getting into another long-term relationship, but he's opening himself up to explore that. And that, to me, ties in with the idea of, A, that nobody ever stops growing. It's something that you do through your whole life. You will always be changing, always be learning. And two... The outcome. Did you say A and two? Did I say A and two? There you go. There you go. I need to learn to say A and B. Um, and B, or one point... Oh my God, what's B? <laughs> yeah. the, the, the outcome of their journeys, it's not that it's irrelevant, but the fact that we don't know is significant. We don't know that Will's road is going to take him somewhere positive. He's walked out on the job that he got lined up. Skylar might not want to see him when he gets to California. We don't know that that's going to go well. He might run over an old Romany woman and get thinner cursed because his, his car's a piece of shit, even if the engine's good. Or he might back over a cat and then have to kill it with a hammer. <laughs> <laughs> that's from the deleted scene, by the way. I didn't just make up that horrendous image myself. But yeah, no, it's it's it ends on the open road very much specifically saying the gate is now open, he's out of the box, he's able to, to travel, he's able to speculate. And more specifically, rather than knowing his road and being able to predict that it's only ever going to end in disaster, he's able to optimistically journey outwards and take whatever comes. So, it's a drama. We don't usually do just dramas. Usually there's a cape involved of some kind. Knock it! Or some form of time travel. We specialise in finding subtext. What we've been talking about here is text and the details which corroborate the text. But it's a really solid drama. And while we haven't talked about him anywhere near as much as I expected we would, uh, Robin Williams comports himself with the kind of gravity it's earnestness which almost all of his roles have to some extent but there's a weariness to it as well and yet a sprightly maturity which feels oxymoronic and i would have loved to have seen him do more of that these are the kind of performances that stay with you he made sean real and he made him real in a fashion that allows you to imagine what would then have happened to sean Moving forward from this, it's not one of those, uh, well, everything grinds to a halt. And uh, again, like most of the films we do tend to go, sequel? Afterwards. <laughs> there was no Goodwill Hunting 2 hunting season. We don't do straight comedy very often, because it's difficult to explain why humour is funny without stepping on it. But one of the main reasons we don't tend to do drama is uh, that it tends to be involved in very specific internal conflict. It's most often literal rather than representational. Applicability is more nebulous. Circumstances are more propitious for us within sci-fi to read into various aspects. Mm. Yeah, we, we tend to respond better when things are a little more abstract in terms of their themes and ideas. If you're looking at paintings, a painting of a basket of fruit mm. is a basket of fruit. And however hard you look at it, 
you might be able to get one or two things that, are, that go beyond it being a basket of fruit, but not much more than that. I don't think uh, I'm ever going to see a Gus Van Sant film that affects me and moves me in quite so much a way as this one does. Mm. I know I'm never going to see a Robin Williams film that doesn't, although there's a couple of his that I haven't seen, like The Fisher King, mm. and I've never seen Good Morning Vietnam. But again, I've lived with this for so long and it's felt it feels so personal to me that it's going to take some beating. And again, I don't think I'm ever going to see Matt Damon and Ben Affleck as quite ever this fresh-faced again. This is something from the past now. And there's a melancholy to it, but also a hopefulness. On Patreon at the $5 level this week, quick reviews of Mortal Engines and Aquaman. And if you're at the $15 level, you of course get a sponsor credit every episode. So I won't do these in the style of Robin Williams rushing through impressions. Oh, ha. Thank you. I'm not doing it. Thank you to Joel Robinson, Abel Savart, Michael Hasco, Matthew A. Siebert, Benjamin Biddle, Joseph Gluck, Sean Doran, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicol, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow. Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. Stay tuned for what's happening next week, right after Sharon pitches you a service once again that I think you'll find absolutely relevant to this show. School of Movie students, this is Sharon Shaw. All of us, without exception, have two things in common. Number one, we all have something in our lives that we're not happy with, something that's bothered us repeatedly over the years and sometimes feels impossible to get past. It could be difficulty forming relationships, it could be a sense of feeling trapped in your job, it could be issues with your parents that just never seem to go away. And number two, all of us like to watch movies. Movies can help us process what's going on in our lives. Sometimes you'll watch one that just feels profound to you specifically. And we already know you're the kind of person who wants to dig deeper into that. Otherwise you wouldn't be listening to our show. But what if you could have some personal guidance in unlocking and examining why that movie means so much to you? It could be your all-time favourite or one you've just seen. It could be one you saw when you were tiny and it just stuck with you. I've been co-hosting this podcast for three years now, guesting for many more before that, and I've seen firsthand how our relationships to certain films can help us grow and work out who we are and who we want to be. What I'm now offering is the opportunity to explore what's affecting you through the lens of a personalised, focused movie therapy session. By now you're familiar with our commission shows, where listeners can ask us to cover movies that Alex and I wouldn't necessarily choose to delve into. And this is your chance to have a private, customised version, a way to self-analyse using a film of your choice as a focus point. This might sound complicated, but here's how we're going to do it. 
You bring a movie that has strong significance to you personally, and I'll bring my experience of film analysis and my qualifications in person-centered counseling, English, drama, and media. And it's gonna be really easy to start this off. You get in contact with me at sharon at movietherapyonmicrosoft.com. That email is in the notes. And we can discuss what film you have in mind and what aspect of your personal life you'd like to address. If that sounds good, I'll go away and watch your movie and then we'll be all set to talk about why it's important to you and how you could apply what you find in the film to your life, relationships and personal development. Just as with commissioned shows, my time and insight are what you're buying here. These one-off, hour-long sessions will run at $60 for the general public, but for this trial period, I'm offering our patrons a reduced rate of $45. Now, this is not going to fix your entire life. It would be ridiculous of me to suggest that. But what it can do is give you perspective on what's holding you back in a relatable way. Focus your intentions and give you a clearer view on the steps you can take to change things for the better. So that email address again is sharon at movietherapy.onmicrosoft.com. Write to me with the movie you choose for your focus point. And we'll go from there. Next week, we have not one, not two, not three, but four Robin Williams movies to talk about. You see, after Ruki Saavedra asked us to cover One Hour Photo or Bicentennial Man, we realised that Sharon had never seen either of them, and the DVDs were inexpensive at my local flea pit. So we tracked them down and sat and watched them late at night, and planned to do a couple of quick reviews as a favour to Ruki. Those turned into fairly lengthy discussions. Then we covered a film that I'd had a morbid curiosity about but never seen, Licence to Wed, and that one got quite heated. Those three together make up a pretty sizable show, but there's more. You see, back in early 2014, we recorded a quick review of Mrs. Doubtfire that was fairly scathing, and then Robin died before we could release it, so we've sat on this thing for five long years, uncertain as to whether it would be in poor taste to put it out. Now, considering the balance of all the other analyses, especially our show on Aladdin and this one, where I think we've made it abundantly clear that we respect and miss this actor, regardless of his choices of film roles, that time has come. So next week, prepare thyself for a dive into the well of Williams with Bicentennial Man, One Hour Photo, License to Wed, and Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh dear, you're going to get Mrs. Doubtfire in your ears, dear. You get a lot of that impression as well. That was pretty good, actually. <laughs> I've got a wee dose of the crabs, dearie. And that is all from us on Goodwill Hunting. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. I'll fake it through the day with some help from Johnny Walker and the poison rain down the drain to put bad thoughts in my head the two tickets torn in half and a lot nothing to do do you miss me miss miss
something bold A trip out of town To a place I've seen In a magazine That you left lying around I don't have you with me But I keep a good attitude Do you miss me? Miss, miss me Like you say Hunting season, scene 16, take five. Yeah, I do remember the class. But frankly, I found it rather elementary. I remember that class. It was just between recess and lunch. Are we going to have a problem? Again? I was still just hoping you might be able to give me a little insight into the southern colonies. See, Wood says... What'd I say? What did I tell you? You'd be back in here regurgitating Gordon Wood. But you forgot about Vickers. No, Vickers... I just read Vickers, so I'm up on inherited wealth hunting. But you're no longer the angry, brilliant young mind you once were just itching to adventure frustrations. Oh, you stopped hitting the books with a vengeance, and now I've read shit you haven't even heard about yet. Face facts, my friend. You're just no longer that good. Will hunting? <laughs> <laughs> Now, how do you like them apples? I don't like the sound of them apples, Will. What are we gonna do? Jackie? Yeah? It's hunting season. Applesauce, bitch. 